you cannot hope to solve the nature crisis unless we tackle the climate crisis or indeed tackle issues of inequality or indeed looking at health and social well-being. This is all very relevant to the tackling the nature crisis as well, looking at how it interacts with the economy and so on. Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Lucinda Rouse, Senior Multimedia Reporter. And I'm Andy Ricketts, Acting Editor at Third Sector, the leading title for the UK voluntary and not-for-profit sector. This week we'll be kicking off the first of several episodes dedicated to environmental and climate issues, looking at how the voluntary sector can best respond to them. And that clip that you just heard was taken from our episode at the end of May with Craig Bennett, Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trusts. And I thought it was a really good starting point to discuss the interconnected nature of all of these different crises and indeed how charities of all different cause areas are somehow involved and part of that web. So this week, we'll be looking more deeply into how these connected crises affect charity service users and how some groups are affected more than others. With us in the studio for this discussion is Jabir Butt, Chief Executive of the Race Equality Foundation, which promotes race equality in social support and public services. Jabir plays a key role in the Health and Wellbeing Alliance, which facilitates conversations between the Black and minority ethnic-led voluntary sector and the health authorities. And he's received an OBE for his services to health equality. Hello, Jabir. Hello, Lucinda. Thank you very much for joining us today. So perhaps we could start with quite a big question. Why are people who are already at a social disadvantage likely to be disproportionately affected by climate change and environmental degradation? Can I start from a slightly different place, Lucinda, if you give me a moment? One of the things we've got to remember about Britain is that there's been an incredibly successful story to be told about Britain's minority ethnic communities. The latest census tells us it's about 21% of the population now. And importantly, there have been some key changes, improvements in life expectancy as well, improvements in employment prospects and so on. However, worryingly and perhaps shockingly, some of the things haven't changed. And one of those is the experience of racism and how it's translated into economic disadvantage and social disadvantage as well. And most worryingly, in terms of the environment, it's meant that the climate crisis that we're now facing has had a disproportionate impact on those communities. So picking up on Craig's point, for example, around the natural environment, we've known for a long time that minority ethnic communities are less likely to live in places where green space is available to them. Their houses are less likely to have green space. They're more likely to live in, in high-rise blocks and they're less likely to have parks available to them as well. So that issue about accessing nature is very much one at the top of the agenda in terms of where minority ethnic communities live. Unfortunately, other factors then exacerbate that experience as well. They're more likely to live in homes that aren't suitably adapted to climate change. So when things become extremely warm, it's difficult to keep homes cool. When things become very cold, it's difficult to keep those homes warm. And that then exacerbates other issues. So, for example, we know that second generation migrants, particularly South Asian migrants, are more likely to experience asthma. Now, asthma is very much triggered by the quality of air that you breathe. Unfortunately, minority communities, 
particularly in urban settings like London, Birmingham, Manchester, Leeds, are more likely to live in those areas with poorest air quality as well. So it then ends up exacerbating those health conditions as well. So it, it's that quadruple whammy of yeah. of social and economic disadvantage then be exacerbated by climate change. Mm. Yeah, it's very interesting and worrying about how interconnected all of these problems are. And I understand that at the Race Equality Foundation, you've been playing a key role in some research by NPC, their Everyone's Environment series. That's not just looking at issues of affecting minority ethnic communities, but other groups. Could you tell us a little bit about that as well? So the environment has been increasingly on the agenda of of lots of organisations, including organisations working in the social sector. And NPCs led a discussion and with us, as well as lots of local organisations like the Sheffield Environment Movement, who've been trying to address some of these issues to do with, with climate change, in particular trying to implement solutions, not just to raise it as a problem, yeah. because I think sometimes that's what ends up happening is we throw our hands up in horror and say it's all terrible, but actually starting to think about what are the things that you can do to bring about some of that change. So again, going back to Sheffield Environment Movement, one of the things they've been trying to do is to improve access to the countryside and, and ensure that minority ethnic communities have greater access to the local countryside, but also nationally as well. So they've been involved in various campaigns and lots of organisations are trying to do that, is to say, well, what can we do about these issues and how can we address that? And what we've tried to do is not only help MPC and others identify the problems, but then start thinking about the solutions and how they can be be applied as well. And how can we also learn lessons from things that do seem to be making making a difference? So, for example, the implementation of the ultra-low emission zone in London appears to have had a, a significant impact on air quality where minority ethnic communities live, so there are perhaps lessons to be learned there as well. Could you just explain that a little bit for people who don't know what it is? So the ultra-low emission zone is an attempt by the London Mayor to, to create a zone where there's less use of cars and more use of public transport as well. Cars are, are one of the key polluters in terms of air quality in urban settings, and if we can remove that as a polluter, we, we're likely to lead to an improvement in air quality. When that was brought about in 2013-14, there was an assessment carried out which demonstrated that black, Asian and minority ethnic communities were more likely to be living in those areas with the poorest air quality in, in London, and uh, were, they were di- disproportionately present in those areas. What we've now seen in the recent evaluation of the impact of the ultra-low emission zone is that they continue to live in areas with the poorest air quality, but the improvement in air quality that has taken place in the last six, seven years has actually been of greater benefit to those communities living in those areas. So there has been a significant improvement, although clearly there's still a long way to go with those changes. It's interesting because that ULES debate has been raging in London, hasn't it? Because the scheme is about to be expanded to other areas. And there have been questions around that because there's so many different things that need to be balanced in that. Because one thing, obviously, the air quality is a major factor in people's quality of life and their quality of health. But then there's also questions about if people have to 
sell their car or sell their vehicle or something it may well be that they're more likely to have a vehicle if they're poorer or from a disadvantaged background it may well be that they're more likely to have to sell their car to comply with the schemes there's lots of sort of different things that need balancing aren't there there just to make an international point for a minute one of the issues that's been raised by the global south and other leaders from the global south has been that not only are they having to bear the impact of climate change, but they're now being asked to bear the cost of climate change. And in some senses, in microcosm, the ultra-low emission zone recreates that, but it recreates it in London, that these communities are at the cutting edge of experiencing poor air quality. And then we may end up with the charges that come with the ultra-low emission zone is putting the extra cost on them as well. So mm. we've got to make sure that the changes that we implement don't end up disproportionately burdening communities that are at greatest risk. And I think the scrappage scheme and so on that was implemented went some way, but I'm not sure it necessarily went all the way. So, for example, we know that minicab drivers in London are more likely to be from a minority ethnic communities, more likely to be men, but more likely to be from minority community. I think it's something like 93% of minicab drivers are. So the implementation of of a charging policy disproportionately impacted them. So mm-hmm. you, you, you've got to be clear, how do you mitigate that cost? How do you address it so that you're not making some people bear that responsibility disproportionately. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because it's an intervention that health-wise is helping exactly those communities that have been disproportionately affected economically. Do you have any thoughts on how the scheme could have been better designed to make sure that there wasn't that positive, negative Inevitably, I think it, it's about how do we ameliorate the costs that are associated. So scrappage schemes and so on, better insulation and, and so on are all those. I think what's been missing perhaps is, and perhaps this is a function of the politicisation of that that debate, has yeah. been an opportunity to explain what the benefits are and how the costs are going to be mitigated and so on. I think we've lost that discussion and instead it's become very much a political argument about well if you vote for Labour you're going to get this if you vote for anybody else you're going to get something else and I'm not sure that actually allows that discussion to take place about what's the value of this approach and how do we ensure that some people don't end up disproportionately paying the cost of it and I fear that if we don't start talking about it in that way it's just going to get worse. We're just going to continue to use it as a stick to beat each other with rather than understanding what the benefits are and explaining it to communities. You've touched on this a little bit already, but could you talk a little bit more about why it is so important that we collect evidence and disseminate more information about how environmental issues are disproportionately affecting minority groups? It's one of those things about uh, COVID-19 that's demonstrated how false information can very quickly be transmitted and then translated into people saying, well, we're not doing that or that's wrong and so on. And the only way to dispel that is to collect real evidence that is systematic, that is demonstrable and so on. And I think that's what we need to do here because we do need to dispel some of the rumours around what the impact of ULES will be or other initiatives will be on minority communities. And by collecting that evidence, we can hopefully make a real change. But I think that leads us on to the other thing and a key issue for us in our work with NPCs around leadership. The social sector can provide leadership 
in this area and because of our existing relationships with our communities the work we do and hopefully the trust that we've built up with those communities there's a real opportunity to dispel some of the myths but also then explain some of the benefits and how perhaps we can make the most of those changes yeah and the notion of working with communities rather than imposing projects or schemes on them how do you see that changing in the coming years one of the things that Bristol Southwest Network have started to do is to actually train the young people around the potential new businesses that can be developed as part of the green economy and what they can do to exploit it. And I think it's thinking like that that starts saying, yes, this is a crisis. Yes, the crisis is potentially damaging, but there may also be opportunities in how we address it, how we deal with it, that we need to start thinking about, you know the jobs that could be created through a better program by insulating houses is is just one of those but there are other opportunities as well making better use of green space making sure that children and young people have access to that green space again there are opportunities uh, there as well so i think it's spending a little bit of effort in reframing the the crisis and saying well how do we address it and how do we make sure that those communities at the cutting of it all also benefit from reframing the economics of it and you mentioned children and young people there and the npc research program is not just looking at minority ethnic groups but also how children are disproportionately affected by the climate crisis and the nature crisis and then also people living with disability and older people. I know that that's not your specific remit but could you tell us a a bit about that and perhaps what the parallels are between these disparate groups? I'm I'm getting very old and I, I, I fear I'm the wrong person to be talking about young people but I think one of the things that has happened particularly in the last three years is young people stepping up and changing the nature of that debate, saying it is an emergency, it does need to be something that needs to be addressed now. And I think the youth strand in the NPC work has demonstrated that actually there are lots of children and young people there who are not only concerned about what the impact will be on their futures, but are actually willing to do something about it now and want to take action now, whether that's political action that they need to take, whether that's actually taking active steps in reframing their local communities, such as setting up walking groups, such as setting up groups that are cleaning up urban settings and so on. It's clear that children and young people are actually activating themselves and are hopefully providing leadership in this area as well. Mm, Presumably that's doubly important because they're going to live that much longer, so they're going to be suffering the effects of this crisis far more than people of an older generation but then conversely older people need to be taken into account it's it's always the case that we can end up focusing too much on one group as opposed to another group and then lose sight of the fact that actually this is a challenge for all of us the climate crisis is going to be as big an impact on on older people as as it is on, on on younger people and we know from things like looking at where older people live the challenge of heating or cooling your house is as important for them as as anyone else so yes we need to have a multi-generational view of this and, and try and activate all of those 
I do think that there is a greater responsibility on us as slightly older people because we've benefited from many of the improved economic growth over the last 30 or 40 years. And in doing that, perhaps we didn't pay as much attention to the climate impact we were having. So I do think it it is our responsibility as well to take action. Nevertheless, children and young people are an important part of that jigsaw and hopefully the leadership that they're starting to already show is going to be built on. It'd be good to hear your thoughts, Jabir, on on what you think UK charities, particularly those that don't have a specific climate focus, might be able to do to help tackle some of the issues at hand here. Inevitably, there is something about charities and the way they themselves operate. So, for example, we've got pension schemes and we've started to look at what are those pensions investing in to make sure that those are ethically approved, but also that they avoid fossil fuels and other investments that perhaps are are damaging. So all charities could spend a little bit of time thinking about how do we manage that. We run a small venue that has has food and waste there as well. Again, looking at how that's operating, I think is important as well. But I think perhaps more crucial than that is to actually recognise that many of these factors are structural and require national change and national action. If we're serious about improving the quality of homes so that they can cope with too much heat as well as too much cold, that requires government-led action. And as charities, we need to raise our voices and say that's a structural factor that needs to be addressed and we all need to work together to do that. I think more and more charities are becoming alive to that and are raising their voices in that but perhaps we need to get better at it as well. Would you say that it's in fact incumbent on all charities to get involved in this debate regardless of what their final charitable purpose is? You're very right there, Andy. Nobody's going to be immune to the impact. And if you're serious about improving lives, you have to be serious about the environmental crisis. But then looking at this problem from a minority ethnic lens, are there risks, do you think, of charities and and their leaders who want to take decisive action to addressing the climate crisis of doing so in a way that might be to the detriment of minority ethnic groups? How can they make sure that they are inclusive and to all groups in society? Since the murder of George Floyd, one of the things that's emerged is a debate about who provides leadership around issues to do with racial inequality and also addressing inequality as a whole. And it's been important to recognise that many of the charities involved in the environmental movement, both internationally but also locally, have been white-led, haven't necessarily engaged with communities, particularly minority ethnic communities. Some are clearly doing something about it. Some are clearly trying to address those issues, whether it's being done as quickly as possible or as systematically as possible is, is open to debate. But what's clear is that the future... We need to ensure that minority ethnic communities' voices are part of that leadership, are part of that programme of of activism, whether that's through work such as the Sheffield Environmental Movement, which is a charity that's focused on, on minority ethnic communities, or whether it's ensuring that mainstream charities are more diverse in their representation. It's probably both. But I think that, that's got to be a key part that actually we're doing with communities. And if we're doing with communities, those communities need to be represented in those leadership voices as well. Could you talk a little bit more about what 
individual charities can specifically do to help move forward the debate around the sort of structural inequalities that we're facing? I think the first part has to be actually recognising that these factors are structural and not just behavioural, because it's very easy to start saying, well, you know, food waste is a real problem and contributes to, to environmental damage because we're not using the food properly and so on. So let's do programmes about how you cook better or, or how do you make sure that you... Uh, you don't waste food and so on. And you can very quickly end up focusing on, let's do that with our with our Asian mothers here or our Caribbean fathers there and so on. And while that's all valuable, and I wouldn't want to dissuade anybody from it, the reality is that many of these issues are much bigger and requires structural change. And, and really, we need to make sure that those people who, in the charitable sector who start working on this understand that as a starting point and then start thinking well what are the levers that I can use to influence that where are the forums that I'm going to that I can raise this as an issue and see whether or not it's being addressed if we're going to have this big discussion about uh, sustainable economic growth how are we going to make sure that that sustainable economic growth in uh, is beneficial to minority communities as well and doesn't lead to a loss of, of significant jobs that aren't then replaced with appropriate or better jobs, for example. So it's bringing that lens to to discussions as well. And I think the charitable sector is really uh, appropriately placed for that. The other thing I think the charitable sector, when it wants to, does very well, is actually stand up to power as well. When when politics or politicians don't want to address an issue, I do think that the charitable sector can be very good at saying, hang on, this isn't right and that we are going to keep raising it and we are going to keep challenging you. And I think uh, my hope is that that's what we do in terms of the environmental crisis as well. Jubir Bhatt, Chief Executive of the Race Equality Foundation, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, I enjoyed that discussion with Jabir, And the standout point for me was how the ultra-low emission zone is in some ways, a microcosm of the climate issue and the inequality surrounding it globally. Yeah, yeah. And it just goes to show the complexity of all the issues that we're facing here. I mean, we talked about it a little bit in the interview with Jabir in the sense of he was saying that minicab drivers were more likely to be from ethnic minority backgrounds in London and how that affects them in terms of the vehicle that they drive and all those related things. They're all connected, but how you go about kind of fixing some of these issues is really difficult because it feels like if you pull one lever, then something else happens on the other side. And it's very, very complicated. But it's really interesting hearing Jabir talk about some of the ways that charities more broadly can consider how they're can get involved in this debate and you know he rightly pointed out that charities have got a significant role to play in terms of speaking to government in this not just the ones that are involved in climate action but charities more broadly and just how they can do things like align any investments that they might have with the green agenda and how they can consider all the work they're doing their office footprint their travel scheme there's so many things that charities can think about Mm. that aren't necessarily related to the thing they do. They might be helping young people, they might be trying to find a cure for cancer, whatever they might be doing, but they can all embed these issues into the work that they're doing. Yeah, it also demonstrates the power of collective action coming from within the sector, because I've heard other views that climate 
commitments and collective commitments can turn into a damp squid because it's very easy to sign a petition or sign a pledge but then actually transferring that into action can be more effective when it's done at the individual level because obviously every charity is different the modus operandi is different for for different organizations which means that a one-size-fits-all approach isn't appropriate or effective um, in this kind of issue but yes We saw last week 92 charities writing to the Prime Minister urging him to keep the government's commitment to provide £11.6 billion in climate financing, which seems to be in jeopardy at the moment. And yeah, that's a big number. And those charities were working across all sorts of different causes from environment to international development to humanitarian response to inclusion and rights issues. Yeah, and also last week we saw the National Council for Voluntary Organisations, the largest membership body for charities in England, putting forward their fueling positive change campaign, which calls on voluntary sector organisations to consider divesting their investments and pensions from companies in the fossil fuel industry. And that's really interesting too, because again, it's calling on charities that aren't working in those areas to consider doing something that helps the green agenda. And I think the NCBA is is right to take this kind of a stance because, as we've already been hearing, these are issues that affect all charity service users. So we will be taking this conversation forward in the coming few weeks. And next week, we'll be looking more deeply at how organisations without a specific environmental remit or mission can incorporate climate considerations, not just into their operations, in the case of divesting their pensions from fossil fuel schemes or making sure that they recycle their paper or not taking taxis on work trips. Don't know who would be doing that anyway. Um, (laughs) but, But really incorporating these considerations meaningfully into their overall mission. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Third Sector Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be the first to hear about a new episode when it drops. Many thanks to our studio guest, Jibir Butt, and to our producer, Nav Pal. Join us again next time.